Well, am I on? Is this thing on? In 1991, Gary Sharon, the lead singer for the group Extreme, wrote a song called Wholehearted. When I first heard it, I, I spelled whole in my head based on the lyrics, and you'll see them in a second. W-H-O-L-E. That's not the title of the song. And if you saw the Friday email, you saw that that's not the title of this sermon. And when I listened to the song, the very first time I heard it, I thought, what a beautiful song about a woman in his life. And I also thought, this could have just as easily been a song about God. Well, it turns out that even though it was a pretty heavy group for the time, Gary is a devout Christian. And he wrote the song meaning it was about God. And the, the, the last two refrains should be on the screen right now. There's a hole in my heart, I'm not going to sing it, that can only be filled by you. And this hole in my heart can't be filled by the things I do. There's a hole in my heart that can only be filled by you. Should have known from the start I'd fall short with the things I do. As I read today's passage and I considered the contrast between what John, John, our pastor, has highlighted over the last couple of weeks and how Jesus responded to his anger and with compassion and passion. There was a plenty of passion in the high priests and in, in, in Caiaphas in particular. And I wondered how the collective wisdom of that day, the, the collective wisdom of the entire group of high priests could be so staggeringly wrong about Jesus. I mean, not even in the zip code. And that's when I thought about this song and the title about there's a hole in our heart, our emotional heart, that can only be filled by him. And the hole that's in our heart and was in their heart impacts everything. In particular, this morning, how it impacts what we think passes for wisdom. Now, this is Jesus' seventh miracle, his last miracle, if you're not counting his greatest miracle, which was resurrecting himself. And the, the response of those religious leaders, and what bothered me most as I read the passage and I was preparing this week, was how myself, my attitude, and that of the broader church, from a practical standpoint in the way that we live out our life, is more like the chief priests than it is Jesus. Now that's that was uncomfortable for me, and I'm suspecting it might be uncomfortable for you. And as we go through this passage, you'll determine where you fall on that on any given day, in particular today. John immediately frames up the typical response to anything related to Jesus. Some believe, some don't. Because at the end of the day, there really are only two types of people ever that have ever lived those that believe in the God found in Scripture and those that don't or won't. I'll have plenty more to say about that, so we'll move on. Verse 47. 
So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and said, what are we going to do since this man does many signs? If we let him continue in this way, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and remove both our place and our nation. If we let him continue in this way, everyone will believe in him. I don't know, is it me? But shouldn't that be exactly what the chief priests would want? He's claim, his claims on the Messiah. He never said it that way, but what did he do? He gave them seven signs. If you know anything about the Judaism, seven is the number of completion. It's he's given them the evidence that validates him. And what they, I mean, they apparently are not convinced that he is who he claims to be. The religious leaders of the day had witnessed and been told, and in this case, some, it was that they, they left and told. Well, all that Jesus had done, and the only thing these leaders seem capable of doing is seeing how bad this is for them. This is nothing new. Look with me at Luke chapter 7. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some of the Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his slave. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him, they these are the Jewish elders. They pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy of you to grant this because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. And that's the end of that statement. There's no and, because why is this Roman centurion worthy of Jesus' consideration in their opinion? Is it because he loves our nation? Maybe. But I think that the next six words really say what's going on in their heart. Reveal the hole in their heart and their religious leadership because of what that centurion had done. He had built them a synagogue. You see any mention about God at all in why Jesus should consider the plea of the Roman centurion? Well, it gets worse, okay? Verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he had prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Let me ask you a question. What's your reaction when church leadership behaves in ways that are contrary to what you know and understand in scripture right I'm not a biblical scholar but I love getting in there you guys know that and each one of you to one degree or another what you know some amount of scripture what is your reaction when you see church people behaving in a way that's contrary to what you 
have learned about Scripture. Now, before you draw your conclusion there, what if they're quoting Scripture? Makes it trickier, right? Because now you're on unsteady ground, particularly if these are the leaders, these are the church leaders. Caiaphas and his lot had concluded that Jesus was a blasphemer. And as such, blasphemers, if you know anything about the, books of the, the, the first five books of the law, they got to die. You got to take them out. Period. It's not like a debatable subject. You just take them out and stone them. And they tried to stone him a couple of times. As high priest, Caiaphas was the most respected, admired, and honored individual in all of Judaism. No matter where anybody was who was affiliated with the Jewish religion at that time where they were scattered around the didn't matter. They knew who Caiaphas was, and people looked up to him. And the sum of Caiaphas's education and religious training was a whole in his heart and wholehearted wisdom. With all that going for him after witnessing everything that Jesus had done for the last couple of few years, how could it possibly, how could he possibly make the declaration that Jesus has to die? Well, easy. Jeremiah 17, 9. If you're not familiar with the text, here we go. It tells us that the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Some of your translations might have wicked. Beyond understanding. As often as we quote this verse around here, even here, did you happen to notice the open quote at the beginning? You see a closed quote at the end? There's a scriptural tip that you got to keep reading. Pardon me. Verse 10. But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine, here it is, secret motives. I give all people their due reward according to to what their actions deserve. Close quote. Beginning to see Caiaphas and the chief priests coming into the frame, I'm sorry because I know I say this often, but it's because too many church-going folks are too quick to believe the people that lead them just because they're leading. And I'll confess to you, I don't trust anybody because of their position or their status. Do I have to bring up the pandemic? You know, just because somebody is in a leadership position doesn't mean that they're speaking something that you need to be moved by, whether it be religious or otherwise. People lie. Sometimes with good intentions, sometimes with bad. Good or bad, with all of their heart, or deceitfully, sometimes, I would even argue, they don't even know which one it is. They're just all in on fill in the blank. We have to turn to Ezekiel for additional clarity regarding our hearts. 
In Ezekiel 18.31, God said, God said, throw off all the transgressions you have committed and get yourself what? A new heart and what? A new spirit. When? When is that occur? They're put together. Throw off all your transgressions. That was God's word to the Jewish people, to, to Israel. Jeremiah 17, 9 refers to any unregenerate heart, any. If we surrender to Jesus, then we on this side of the first Easter are recipients of the heart that God is describing here in Ezekiel. Sadly, Caiaphas was not. He was spectacularly successful at religion, but his heart hadn't changed. As the lyrics pointed out that I read earlier, his heart and his religion were limited to the things that can be done. The majority of people who run our government are not much different than the chief priests and Caiaphas. Most of our elected and appointed officials ignore God in their conclusions and in their governance, much the same as them. I'm just sorry. I'm just, just look at what's going on, and you would have to come to that conclusion. They're not looking, scouring Scripture, being Berean, to find out what God has said about the predicaments we find ourselves in. I don't see it. Do you? The good news is now, like then, God is always in control. He's in control and he's God or he's nothing. Certainly nothing that would merit my attention. I don't know about you. If he's not God and in control of all of this, then let's go find something else to do. Let's eat, drink, and be merry and be, gone, be done with it. But he is. And here's the good news. Let's look back at that passage that I just read at verse 51. I have never bothered to see this. I don't know, I've, I don't know how many times I've read the New Testament, probably 30. And I've never, ever really paused on this phrase. He did not say this on his own. Caiaphas, they're talking about here, did not say this on his own. It wasn't until I prepared for this morning that I really grasped why John included that little phrase. So, I started hitting the commentaries. And lo and behold, some guy who lived in the 1600s was, I would find, I'd say he was a kindred spirit because he was considered a, he was a biblical commentator, an English theologian, and he was a non-conformist, so to speak. So, I suspect we would be fine. And then Poole summed up John's inclusion of the phrase that I've just read with the following. It should be on the screen. The spirit of prophecy sometimes fell upon wicked men. God revealed to Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar, both are pagans, the things which he intended to do. Caiaphas, though a vile and wicked man, was here influenced by God to prophesy and speak an oracle. The matter of these words were indeed a divine revelation. 
though his intention and scope was more fit for none but a base carnal politician. God made him a prophet in what he said, though he meant not so. There are times when God just inserts himself and has people say things that need to be said no matter whether they believe him or don't believe him. From the Garden of Eden to today, God has ordained all alliances, both government and religious, for his purposes. Men minimize the heart when it comes to outcomes. God emphasizes your heart when it comes to outcomes. We base it on, well, it all turned out great, so God must be with me. Maybe. Caiaphas was interested in maintaining his own power and influence. It's just very clear. And he was quite <clears throat> successful at doing so. I mean, this. check the record. Read Josephus. The guy was successful. All the signs Jesus had performed were done to provide anyone who had studied Scripture ample evidence to prove he was who he claimed to be. And yet, the collective sum of wisdom was unmoved, unimpressed. What mattered to them was their self-interests and important over God's. Caused me to wonder how often I'm guilty of that exact same thing. How about you? Verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And he stayed there with his disciples. The Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple complex, what do you think? He will come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he being Jesus, he should report it so that they could arrest him. Now, this particular Ephraim is not the tribe of Ephraim. It's not the, the, the wilderness country up there. No one actually knows where this town of Ephraim was because it doesn't exist anymore but it was thought to be a day or two journey from Jerusalem, just far enough to make it so that it would be significantly inconvenient to go try to chase them down. Jerusalem was divided and Passover was coming, which for Jerusalem is the busiest time of any given year. Think New Orleans and Mardi Gras, okay? a festival that started off with spectacular expectations and intentions that had since lost its way. The Jews from all over the world journeyed to Jerusalem just for Passover. And the people were taking sides over Jesus. Jesus knew and understood what the chief priests had decided and ordered. So he took his disciples and got out of town because his plan... God's plan meant that their plan needed to be put on hold until the Passover. 
Throughout all of history, people have aligned themselves with one another for various reasons. Be it economic or safety being the most common, regardless of why aligned, people have always remained ideologically divided when it comes to God from the very beginning. It has never changed. Eventually, that divide creates some tension. Now as then, the ideological divide always seems to center on outcomes. If the outcome is unsuitable, who's to blame? God or the collective wisdom of mankind? Can't possibly be us. Reminds me of the ninth chapter of Proverbs, specifically verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is what? Understanding. Recently in our foundations class, we discussed the difference between biblical wisdom and worldly wisdom. And the chief end of scriptural wisdom, which you just read, is to understand how to live in a manner that honors and pleases God. Gaining knowledge, understanding, and wisdom to enable us to live our lives in such a way as we would glorify God. Is that the reason we're educating ourselves these days? I had a section in here I was going to talk about Ecclesiastes for a little bit because Ecclesiastes is another one of the wisdom books. Solomon wrote it. Solomon purported the wisest man ever to live apart from Jesus, and he wrote 12 chapters which are essentially a playbook for anybody to lead a completely hedonist lifestyle until the last two verses in which he said, here now the entire matter has been heard. This is the conclusion of all of it. The entire duty of mankind is to fear God and keep his commandments. You would think that our education system would have not veered so far from the path that we had completely removed ourselves from Deuteronomy 6 and the Shema, which for the Jewish people, that's it. You know, it's to honor the Lord with everything that's in you, in all that you do always. Roy's paraphrase. Okay? Is that what we're doing? Why was that in the Shema? If you keep reading chapter 6, it was they would, they would talk with their children. They would walk with their children. They would do it as it, when they ate. They would do it when they walked in town. They would do it all the time. And you say, man, that sounds kind of obsessed. Really? How are you going to get anything done? There's the tension. There it is, plain and simple. There's a tension between the twinkly, sparkly bits that culture has created that keep us distracted from the one thing that God created us for, and that is to glorify and honor Him. I know I'm pretty pathetic at it. I know that wasn't anywhere on the... Um, 
any agenda I can imagine when I was going through school. Not a bit. It's not just our universities or schools. Much of the church has lost its way when it comes to why we pursue education and wisdom. Slowly, over the last couple of centuries, we've allowed Satan and culture to co-op why we're seeking knowledge. What amounts to wisdom? This is what happened to a guy named Caiaphas and most of the chief priests. The end result of their education was a self-centered, self-preserving religion, and in their case, no apparent concern for how they could live and lead God's people in a way that glorified God. It was all about what you could see in the show. So let's wrap this up. Head, hearts, hands. There's a hole in our heart that can only be filled by God. Intellectually, we have to understand that that hole is real and that God is the only one who can fill it. Mine, yours, only built by him. Are you still trying to fill it, as the lyricist said, by the things that you do? Then heart. Settle it. C.S. Lewis is famously quipped, Jesus is either Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. If he's the Lord, then live like it. Jesus sought to please the Father. In fact, back in John 5, 19, which we just covered a few months ago, well, it was more than a few months ago, sorry. Jesus said to them, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Sounds obsessed? I said it just a little bit ago. It is obsessed. As far as the rest of the world is concerned, you are supposed to look like a called-out and different kind of person. Obsessed, exactly. And finally, hands. Pretty sure this or a variation of this has been the hands for like my last 12 sermons. Sorry, there's no shortcuts. Actively seek the same kind of heart that Jesus had. Actively, actually committing yourself to it daily. Read your Bible and pray. Jesus didn't have to read the Bible. He was the Word. Okay, he gets a pass on that one. But he spent a ton of his time doing what? Praying. He would go away, and the disciples, it's just recorded in your Gospels. He would set himself away, and he would isolate himself to pray, to get himself what? In sync and stay in harmony in his humanity with the Father. Well, we are humanity. We, to, in order to synchronize our behavior, the way we're living out our lives, and what we consider wisdom, need to do likewise. Jesus is focused, it was focused, on doing whatever his Father does. Present tense. God is always active, always doing things around you. 
Do you have enough knowledge of Scripture? Be honest with yourself. Do you have enough knowledge of Scripture and an understanding of Scripture, i.e., wisdom, scriptural wisdom, to do the same as Jesus? To, to react to the events of your day in a way that Jesus would? Even just a little. I've said this many times. Not perfectly, noticeably, even to you. Sorry. Is it possible that worldly wisdom concerning knowledge has robbed you of the joy that could be yours if your educational priorities were a little different. I'm getting the medal in now. What's your heart telling you? None of us in this room, look, you're the ones that aren't out fishing right now. You're in this room. I'm not trying to kick you. But I know this, I'm confident of this. There's not one of you in this room that wants to be Caiaphas. You don't want to be so blinded to what you think God wants that's not grounded in Scripture. Because he knew it. There's a fairly good chance that he, Caiaphas had probably memorized the first five books and all the Webster books. That was part and parcel with how they wound up being honored and elevated to position. Is they had to know that, and in spite of that, completely missed Jesus. I know we don't want to be like Jesus. I know I, I mean, like, like Caiaphas. Like Caiaphas. I'm sure that you don't either. At least, I hope that this look at this passage has given you something to think about with regard to your priorities daily. Let's pray. Father, when we read the Gospels in the accounts of the chief priests and the elders and their, their incessant obsession with their status and their own self-importance and outcomes that they managed to completely miss your son. And I pray, Lord, that we would not allow our own culture's obsession with status and accumulation of things and, and all of the things that we strive for. And education is no different than that. The, the state of education in our country is, is troubling. It's troubling. And that's not to say, well, I mean, I'm so thankful that you have the school here on this campus that is your school. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to help the teachers that are there to stand firm against the tsunami that, that's the cultural tsunami against them. And I'm grateful, Lord, for this church that you've, that you've got us here and that we're trying and doing what we can to stand for your word and to try and live our lives in a way that glorifies and honors you.
for we do it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.